to purchase an takes it, gives thanks for it, breaks it, <clears throat> gives it to disciples, and the multitudes are fed to his glory. I want to say uh, on behalf of all of us who preach, thank you to all of you who pray for us. Uh, it, it helps, and it's, it's as much a part of the message as anything we do up here. So I've done sermons where I used math. I did a sermon where I used chemistry. I've used a lot of biblical history. So today we're going to do vocabulary. <laughs> because, because I want you to have a well-rounded education. Or something, I don't know. Actually, it's because I'm a word guy. Um, my father teaches philosophy. And he said that the first rule in every discussion Define your terms. Because otherwise, you don't know what you're talking about. If one person says a word that means one thing and somebody else uses the same word to mean something different, you're not having the same conversation, but you think you are. And you think you're both at odds when you're really not. Can all the married couples give me an amen? <laughs> so, I'm going to read you five sets of contrasting definitions. The Bible uses them all because it describes both the godly and the ungodly with pinpoint accuracy. As it says in Proverbs 28.5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand everything. How many of you have seen the movie Frozen 2? You remember Olaf's song about how when you get older, everything will make sense? <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> Some things do make sense when you get older, those of you who aren't older yet. But there's some things that, are, that, that still make us go, huh? What the heck? But anyway, with these definitions, I, I'm pretty confident that, that we'll all be on the same page after, after I get done. So. First set of words, reverence contrasted with scorn. Reverence is a feeling or attitude of deep respect tinged with awe. I remember Spencer Travers always used to say that only God was awesome. He made that word special. Contrast that with scorn, contempt, disdain, derision, rejection refusal or ignoring, to show an attitude of disgusted certainty in someone or something's lack of value. Very, very different. Reverence is increasingly rare in our culture. We do not bow, we do not rise, or doff our hats, or let others go first, or hold the door or chair or celebrate authority, but we should. It is practice, after all, for our walk with God, as so much of this life is designed to be. Our rebellious hearts need all the practice and reverence they can get. Second set, respect versus rebellion. Respect, 
R-E-S-P-E-C-T. To hold, oh, that's okay, don't worry. To hold in high esteem, to sense worth or excellence, to honor, to obey. In sickness, oh, no, wait, that's something else. To treat carefully, to observe the boundaries of another, to acknowledge and have regard for another's authority in your life. That's respect. Rebellion. Resistance to or defiance of authority or control. Mutiny. Sedition. Insubordination. Disobedience. This rebellion is described as equally terrible as the sin of witchcraft to God. According to the prophet Samuel, he was speaking to Saul. Saul had adjusted God's directions about the Amalekites, trimmed them a little, deviated slightly in one particular. And God saw it as a complete rebellion. Breaking any law is an assault on all the laws, says James 2.10. And any instance of putting self ahead of God is rebellion in all its evil ugliness. Third set, dignity versus humiliation. Dignity, attitude of self-respect. Nobility of character, to keep hold of one's value or worthiness, bestowed by an authority or power. Grace, decorum, poise, virtue, character. Versus humiliation. To accept the low opinion of yourself that others force upon you to give up your dignity or self-respect, demeaning, embarrassing, disgracing. Book of Proverbs says that humility comes before honor. Fourth set, sacred versus common. Sacred means to set apart, to be special, devoted, consecrated, entitled to respect, reverenced, not to be violated, to be so highly valued as to cause a complete suspension or reversal or setting aside of all attention to other things for a period of time. Common means dismissible, worthless, to be ignored, forgotten, rejected, or unnoticed due to a lack of value. Is our God so important to us that we are willing to set aside what gets in the way in order to have him? Do we hold our value as high as God holds it? 1 Corinthians 6.19, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not to be violated not to be tainted or corrupted. We don't always treat ourselves that way, do we? Fifth set, honor versus dishonor. 
Honor includes the ideas of honesty, fairness, integrity of belief and action, high respect, worth, merit, to revere or hold in high respect. Dishonor, to insult, to cause shame or disgrace, dishonest conduct or character, indignity. When as a community we worship God, we know what to honor and how to honor it. We find meaning and purpose. Our culture, however, increasingly affirms that life is random and pointless and will finally end in despair because it increasingly worships itself. It will not have honor from God. Dishonor is all that is left. The Bible uses these positive words to describe God and his people's proper attitude toward both himself and one another and others. The Bible uses these negative terms for God's enemies and the way they treat God and others and ultimately what they will end up receiving. Along with these five sets of words, there is very often found this very interesting phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's important for understanding reverence that we understand that phrase. To fear the Lord encompasses several things. It includes actually taking his wrath seriously. We didn't live through the ten plagues of Egypt, thankfully. But sometimes it's easy to kind of think of them as just legendary. We didn't live through the angel of God destroying 185,000 Assyrians overnight. But it happened. And God did it. We sometimes read descriptions of God's wrath in Revelation and it's a little bit distasteful. Particularly to our culture, which is so sensitive to everything. But that's part of God's character. He's fierce. And it's important that he's fierce. If you don't have fierce, you don't get justice. If you don't have fierce, you don't get fierce defense of what you love. You get wimpy. I don't need wimpy. I am wimpy enough. Thank you. I need a fierce God. I need a strong God. So it's good that we remind ourselves of that part of the fear of the Lord. It includes treating him as holy, sacred, set apart. Some, something, our relationship with him needs to be something that we don't violate. It includes submitting to and obeying him out of love and respect, which is what we're supposed to be doing to each other as well. It means heeding what he says because we expect him to follow through because he does always follows through. He doesn't always follow our timeline, but he always follows through. And we expect him to know what's best. We 
try to give him advice, don't we? <laughs> but he knows best. The fear of the Lord includes all those things. All through the book of Deuteronomy, the phrase, the fear of the Lord, is found along with admonitions to obedience, following directions, loving, and worshiping. So those go together. In the book of Joshua, the phrase accompanies descriptions of God's might, as well as a protest against those who would turn people away from the fear of the Lord. In 2 Kings, fearing the Lord is part of multiple negative descriptions of Israel's deviant behavior, saying that they did not fear the Lord to follow his commands, to worship only him, and to trust in his strength to win their battles. I always think it's a little bit humorous when Hollywood tries to, to make movies about supernatural forces because they never get it right. They haven't read the book. Remember Indiana Jones, the first movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Thrilling action <coughs> movie, Harrison Ford at his best. And, but there's a, there's a part in it that, that I just go, come on, guys. It's right there, black and white. You didn't read it. There's a, a picture in the movie, some, I don't know, ancient drawing of the Ark of the Covenant shooting out beams of light, destroying armies. And so everybody thinks that the power is in the ark. Did you read what happened to the Philistines when they took the ark? I'll spare you the graphic details, but it was very painful. It was so painful that they asked their own priests, who weren't God worshipers, they said, how do we keep from all getting destroyed? We've got to give this thing back. It's killing us. And even then, power is not in the ark. It wasn't like anyone who touched the ark or, or you know, looked at it wrong, got the diseases that got it. It was God. The power is in God. It's not like the occult. In all of the Harry Potter and, and all the other occult witchcraft-oriented things, not that, you know, not that it's a sin to read Harry Potter, I'm not saying that, but all those kinds of stories where the magic is in the objects, where it's an impersonal force to be manipulated, kind of like the wind, they've missed it. Supernatural power is inherently personal. Anyway. Fear of the Lord means that you've got to understand what kind of a God you're dealing with. In 2 Kings, fearing the Lord, oh, we've talked about that, sorry. In Job, the phrase is combined with affirmations of Job's integrity and the fact that he turns away from evil. In Psalm 25, 14, God's secret counsel is said to be with those who fear him. Psalm 33, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, who depend on his faithful love. Psalm 34 admonishes children to hearken to the fear of the Lord as taught them by their parents. Psalm 111 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 112 and 128 tell us that happy is the one who fears the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is the source of strong confidence and the fountain of life. Isaiah 33.6, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. In Haggai 1, the Israelites show their fear of the Lord in their obedience to his word. Malachi 3 makes a sharp distinction in God's purposes for those who do and do not fear him and his name. And that's just the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Acts 9, the fear of the Lord is paired with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.12 refers to the fear of the Lord as the motivation for evangelism. Fearing the Lord is also the motivation for working wholeheartedly in Colossians 3.22. And in Revelation 15, all are shown to fear the Lord at last as his full power and majesty are revealed. God cares about whether we show reverence for him and what belongs to him, including his people, his name, and his messengers. Not because he's offended if we don't, but because it puts us in the very correct place of delighted humility before God on the throne. If we are not reverent, we are not in the right position before God. We are in danger of putting ourselves first. And we will always cause harm to ourselves and others when we do. Reverence is both a protection for others and an antidote for idolatry in our own hearts. Now the opposite of reverence, all of the scorning and the scoffing, the contemptuous, blithe dismissing, and attitudes of rejection are usually in the description of God's enemies. Referenced in Jude is the very interesting uh, episode where Michael the archangel disputes with Satan about the body of Moses. And it's pointed out very particularly that Michael was not disrespectful or irreverent. It's mentioned in other places how Michael and his angels fight against Satan and his demons and whip the tar out of them. King James, a place was not found for them anymore. Love the British understatement. But even with all that power, Michael was not irreverent or disrespectful. We need to take careful stock of our practiced cynicism. That attitude that comes up when you see an ad, when you get the phone call from the telemarketer. It's not wrong to feel that way about ads, but we need to be careful that it doesn't become a default mechanism. Our national media culture shows respect for nothing and no one except cleverness and raw power. Our local culture is a little better. Around here you can find people showing respect for things like the flag, veterans, the elderly, the Bible, churches, and most traffic regulations. But we Americans cherish our rebellions, our latent unity against oppression. We honor individuals over the group as a rule. We have cultural values that do not always line up with biblical values. We must be careful not to confuse them. God calls us to submit to the governing authorities, whether we agree with them or not, in Romans 13. 
We're called to submit to one another in the fear of Christ in Ephesians 5.21. And we know we don't always see eye to eye, do we? And in that very popular section about husbands and wives, wives are called to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. That's hard to do. Husbands are called to sacrifice for their wives as for themselves, and that's hard to do. Submission, honor, and reverence. It doesn't always line up with what goes on around us, does it? Sometimes it's hard to find it in movies, TV, books. Sometimes it's hard to find it even in friendship. But it's important because we can't serve two masters. We have to decide what values we're going to live by and decide before the heat of the moment of trial or our weaknesses will rule our behavior. If we truly desire to be faithful to God alone, to be reverent, to honor what is right, we want our lives to show the fear of the Lord, can we do it when it's hard? As Satan asked in Job 1, will a man serve God for nothing? Will we be faithful when God doesn't make sense? When our expectations are disappointed, when nothing is as we think it should be? Because that's the real test, isn't it? Recently, we've heard some sermons about some uncomfortable things. Aging, death, grief, hell, exploitation. What a happy church. <laughs> oh, man. That's life, though, isn't it? Life's hard. What about God's apparent cruelty to those who seem innocent? Is it difficult to show reverence and honor to such a God? I was struck recently by the way God tests his faithful ones, even those he loves with these kinds of events. Daniel eleven thirteen talks about how the wise and godly will give understanding to many. Yet they will perish by sword and flame, be captured and plundered for a time. Does that seem fair to you? Book of Chronicles. After Hezekiah, who was a faithful king, and just before Josiah where it says there was no king like him before or since in his devotion. Neither one of those things prevented or made up for the idolatry and bloodshed that went on during Manasseh's reign. Some of the evil kings in Israel and Judah only reigned for a matter of a few short years, some of them even a few months or a week, one of them for three days. So God knows how to get rid of bad leaders quickly if that's what he has in mind. But Manasseh reigned for 55 years. <sighs> Each of us could name at least a few presidents we wished had never served our country. But even the worst only led for a few years. Even our record-setting four-termer, FDR, was only president 13 years. Manasseh reigned four times that long doing nothing good as far as the Bible records. What was God doing all that time? What would it have been like to be one of the faithful in Judah under such a king? 
What about the murder of all the boys around Bethlehem when Jesus was helped to escape to Egypt? The great weeping by those mothers must have broken God's heart, but he allowed it as a fulfillment of Scripture. What would we say to the parents of a child lost in this way? Jacob's wife, Leah, treated as property by her devious father, is foisted upon a man known to love her sister, who is now her rival for the affection of their mutual husband. This wasn't something she dreamed about when she was a girl, was it? And she, as far as we can tell, she didn't do anything to earn such mistreatment. How would we counsel such a woman today? When the Greeks took over and the Jews were, uh, their temple area was violated and they were uh, being ruled by someone who was very against their way of life, they decided they weren't going to take it anymore. The Maccabees rebelled and were successful. They had freedom and independence after a righteous revolution. What could be better? Sounds very American, doesn't it? How about defeat and subjugation, humiliation and loss of freedom for many generations under the Romans? What kind of story is this? What kind of God writes that into the story? What about Hagar, Sarah's handmaid? Treated as property, again. She's given by Sarah to her husband to fulfill God's promise because basically they were getting impatient. And when Hagar gets pregnant, as planned, Sarah gets upset that her plan succeeded. And she begins to mistreat her pregnant servant. Hagar flees. And God tells her to go back and submit to her mistress's mistreatment. even though he knows that Hagar and her son are going to be sent packing in 13 years anyway. And that their descendants will become the ultimate enemies of Sarah's son Isaac's descendants, even to this day. Arabs and the Jews. Couldn't God have fixed that somehow? Why would he allow that? I was reading, I guess, yesterday and today in 1 Corinthians 7 with Paul's admonition that being single has some advantages over being married. Being married, I always kind of struggle with that passage because I see so many advantages to being married. It's one of those things that I, I just don't quite understand. Now, all these instances of apparently unfair, puzzling, and certainly disappointed and unexpected events severely challenge my optimism, my faith, and my good humor. But they do not affect the goodness and faithfulness of the God I serve. He came first, so he defines goodness. And he is writing the story. So however the story seems to be going at the moment, I choose to believe in his goodness as manifested by thousands 
of other examples in Scripture and my own life, including times where I swore I was being treated unfairly and was angry at God for allowing it, only to become grateful later when I realized that what I had gained from God was better than what I had lost or even what I had planned for myself. I've seen through these times that he has better things in mind for me than I have for me. So I can trust him when I don't understand him because he has a unique track record of goodness and mercy, even in the midst of the most terrible, painful suffering of those he loves. He is worthy of our reverence. If you question his goodness, if you find it hard to believe in it, if you find it hard to serve God for nothing, if you can't understand why you should revere God who allowed that bad surprise in your life, let's consider the following. Genesis 3. First bad surprise. Adam and Eve sin, and they're cursed. Even in the curses, though, there's mercy. But they're sent away from the garden before they ever have the chance to take from the tree of life. And at first glance, that seems like, you know, just another part of the punishment. Yeah, they have to leave. Yeah, they don't get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All this bad stuff. But consider the mercy in that step. The tree of life. Eternal life. After they've sinned, before Christ's sacrifice, you know what that would mean? You'd be stuck, sinful, in a sinful world permanently. What a kind God to take that option off the table. Probably Adam and Eve didn't see it that way at the time, but isn't that just like us? Praise the Lord that he booted them out when he did. What about Naaman, big hero of the Arameans? Came to Elisha for healing because he heard that Elisha served a God who could do that kind of thing. Elisha doesn't even see him. Sends his servant out to tell him what to do. Doesn't ask him any questions. Doesn't say, oh, come in, have a seat, let's talk. Oh, I'm so sorry. None of that. Not being very sensitive. And Naaman feels it. He's like, <coughs> didn't even do anything magical. What kind of prophet is this? Not going to swing a dead cat over his head by the light of a full moon? Come on. Wash seven times in the dirty river next door, and you'll get exactly what you want. We all struggle with pride sometimes, don't we? I do it self. As each of our children has said at one point or another. But he does it. He's reminded by a very brave servant who said to a very angry Naaman, um, Sir, the prophet had asked you to do something crazy, you're willing to do it, right? 
Naaman realizes the truth of what his servant is saying. So he reluctantly, grudgingly, it doesn't say he kicked and screamed, but probably on the inside there was some of that, goes to the river, gets in the dirty water, seven times. When he submitted without understanding or explanation, God did the impossible. He gave him what he wanted most. The kind of a God. Consider especially the unfairness of Christ on the cross, suffering for us in our place. All the bad surprises in that story, including his betrayal, flogging, crucifixion, and death, only to give way to the greatest joy and relief ever when he appears alive again. We'll get to celebrate that in three weeks. Yeah, you tell him. <laughs> Hebrews 11 describes all that the saints have suffered and the fact that they are not yet perfected because we are to join them. All of us together are going to receive eternal life and the, perform, the, the fulfillment of God's promises. We all enter in at once. Now, how fair can you get? We are not Christians if we refuse to follow Christ or believe what he says. We have no witness to the world if we are only Christians when others are watching or when it is easy or when it feels good, or when it's nice. Jesus is not a weekend hobby or a part-time devotion. Either he's involved in everything in our lives, or we are trying to keep him out for no good reason. We all struggle with this. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. All of us have a closet of some kind that we hope God will let us deal with on our own terms, but it cannot be. We cannot become like him if we try to master any part of our life alone. How can we have his life if we try to have any part of this life on our own terms? You've seen perhaps maybe in Mardell um, the very pastoral scene of the ocean and the sand and two sets of footprints and the story that goes with it about the guy who had a dream that he was on the beach and saw two sets of footprints and Jesus was walking with him and told him, these sets of footprints, that's where I walked with you. And then he sees a part of the beach with only one set of footprints and he goes, Lord, why did you leave me? Jesus says, no, that's where I carried you. Sometimes we need that. But my favorite addition to this is that there's a third section of the beach. There's kick marks and gouges and sand sprayed everywhere, and there's all these crazy marks all over the place, and the guy's going, Lord, what the heck happened there? It looks like there was a war. Jesus said, that's where I dragged you kicking and screaming. Because <laughs> we need that, don't we? Uh, 
we have to be <laughs> dragged kicking and screaming sometimes. Isn't it a merciful God who's willing to go through that? Mm. God does not need our permission or our enjoyment or our comfort. He made this world and he has the right to unmake it as he wills. He made us and he has the right to unmake and remake each of us according to his desire. We have no right to tell him what to do. It's like in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Why should I tell you what the good book says? We have no right to tell him why he should do it differently or that it's not good enough for us. We have no right to whine, which as Americans goes against the grain, doesn't it? Seriously, there are countries where you can't whine. You don't get to make any statement against the government. They will imprison you or boot you out or worse. Here you can whine. You can even get your own YouTube channel. Whine all you like. Some people do. Thankfully, our God is merciful to our selfish nature and willing to forgive us for whining. And we have so much for which to be thankful. Even our suffering is riddled with mercies. And if God the Father opened the door to rescue mankind through the suffering of his son, he has similar mind-blowing plans to continue that rescue through the suffering of his son's followers. And let us remember that we all deserve to be punished. It's only by the suffering of Christ that we're able to avoid that same suffering. Let's be thankful that life is unfair in our favor through the mercy of our loving Lord. Keeping this in mind can help us to be more reverent, to avoid idolatry and being scoffers, and to remain sober and vigilant for the traps and tricks of our enemy. For we are in a war. We feel it and see it, I think, more clearly now than ever before in, in my lifetime. In every war, there are those who fight valiantly. There are those who die foolishly. There are those who get lost and those who betray out of fear or envy. We are called to live and to die valiantly. We are called to reach out to others even when we are in need. We are destined to be persecuted and to reign with our king who was also persecuted. Let us not lose sight of the goal, the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ. Let us not be so caught up in our politics, our religion, our entertainment, that we forget where our citizenship is, where our treasure is, and where our mansion has been prepared for us by our Savior. Let us not be so comfortable, so distracted, so overwhelmed that we miss the treasures, the opportunities, and the moments of connection with our Lord and friend. Are we listening? Are we reverent? Are we going to give ourselves for the one who gave himself for us? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. Yet a very little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed we are those who have faith and obtain life. This is the way. Let us walk in it as we fear the Lord.